0: There's nothing in social arrangements that's going to be able to guarantee that everyone wins the same amount within this society. And we are in the sun, (laughs) but we're only briefly in the sun.
1: And now the good fight with Yasha Monk. Joe Biden will be the 46th president of the United States. For the past days and weeks, I have felt much more optimistic than many of my friends and colleagues. Now that Biden has won this election, I am much happier than many of them. And I've been trying to reflect on the reasons for this difference. I think it has something to do with a very different baseline. As long-time listeners to this podcast will know, I have been arguing for the past five, six years that populism is a very powerful force, that it has support in many different countries around the world, that it is not at all easily defeated, and that it represents a serious danger to democracy. The American story of the past four years has once again confirmed these insights. Donald Trump wasn't laughed out of court when he announced his presidency. He made it overweight the to the White House. The institutions didn't easily rein him in. He has managed to do serious damage to the rule of law and the separation of powers. And no, Americans didn't turn on him in one wave election with virtually everybody deciding that he was a terrible president. As in so many other countries in the world, this authoritarian populist has retained a lot of support. We have not vanquished the dangers of authoritarian populism at home or abroad in one fell swoop and we were never going to. Having said all of that, we have just won the biggest battle against authoritarian populism so far. In the United States, incumbent presidents nearly always win. And yet Donald Trump has lost. Around the world authoritarian populists nearly always win re-election. And yet, Donald Trump will leave office on the 20th of January, 2021. And in a great number of cases, over populists manage to take such complete control over the political system that they can no longer be removed by democratic means. And yet, Donald Trump has been sent packing in a free and fair election. This is not the end of populism. It is not the end of Trumpism. It is not the mandate to remake America as much as some people on the Democratic side may have hoped. But it is the greatest and most significant victory against authoritarian populism we have yet achieved. If somebody had told me this result Three years and 11 months ago, I would have wept for joy. And so I think it's time for all of us who care about the maintenance of democracy and the preservation of philosophically liberal values to take a deep breath and pour ourselves a celebratory drink. Well, today it's a special pleasure for me to talk to Gregory Clark. Gregory is an economist at the University of California who has done some of the most interesting work on social mobility. One of his findings is that there is much less social mobility than we tend to think. That when you look at people with rare last names in Sweden in the 19th century, or even in Italy in the 14th or 15th century, it gives you a lot of information about how these people are doing in society today. I really try to grapple with this finding and what it might mean for public policy, what it might mean for our ability to build uh, more just societies in this conversation. I learned a lot from it, and I trust you will too. Gregory Clark, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. So I've read a good bit of your work, and I find that it really gives a very fresh and new perspective on a whole range of questions about the economy and about social mobility that we'll have to answer if we want to figure out how to make people optimistic about the economic future again. And the challenge that I'm going to pose myself throughout this conversation is whether your work is compatible with optimism, which is something that people often ask me. But let's start with a positive part of the story. In a book called The Farewell to Arms, you Try to explain how it is that there was virtually no economic progress throughout human history. And then in about 1800, we start to get very rapid economic progress. What's the evidence for that and why that sudden transformation?
0: So it turns out the Industrial Revolution really is one of the great mysteries of human existence. And it's been a mystery that economists have wanted to explain by it's just a product of the right institutions. And the trouble is, the more you study economic history, the harder it is to have the illusion that somehow we stumbled upon the right economic institutions after 10,000 years of wandering in the wilderness. And so, what the book tries to do is to develop other reasons for the long delay in the Industrial Revolution.
1: And so perhaps before we get to your explanation, it might be helpful to people who are less versed in the literature to understand what some of those alternative explanations are. So, I mean, uh, I've had James Robinson on the podcast in the past, for example, and what kind of story would he tell, along with Darren Matsumoglu, for why it is that we do end up with the right institutions at some point, and that allows the state to expand, that allows the economy to blossom? What are the kinds of explanations that perhaps are more orthodox in the field that really put institutions at the heart of this set of developments?
0: So Robinson and Asimoglu are the ultimate institutionalists. And so they draw their inspiration from North Korea versus South Korea, or from north of the Mexican border versus south of the Mexican border, where they say, look, it's all explained simply by the incentives that you are offering people in these societies. The reason that actually works very poorly, in my view, in terms of the Industrial Revolution is that England was a very slowly evolving society institutionally. But the Industrial Revolution was this sharp
1: discontinuity.
0: And in England, generation after generation, there would be these very incremental changes.
1: I see. So the point is, when you look at North Korea versus South Korea, they have very different institutions, very different economic outcomes. And so clearly there is an institutional element that explains that divergence. But when you look at England in 1750 versus England in 1850, the institutions are very similar and yet the economic outcomes are very, very different. So it doesn't seem like the institutions can explain that. That's right. And then the other
0: feature is that it may be that you need a set of minimally good institutions to have growth, right? And so a lot of people didn't expect that China under communism would grow very rapidly. But we've seen that even with relatively imperfect institutions in China, you can have very rapid economic growth. And the interesting thing is if you go back to something like medieval England, you actually have perfectly decent economic institutions, but no growth. So the the average rate of taxation in medieval England was 1%. The average rate of taxation in modern Sweden is 50%. The disincentives towards activity in the modern economy are actually much greater from government interference than they were in the medieval economy. And as I say, England is just one example. We can go back to ancient Rome, ancient Greece. We can go back to China 2,000 years ago. And you won't find perfect economic institutions, but you'll find ones which are perfectly effective in terms of being adequate for economic growth. And so that's, as to say, why it's just become very difficult to explain the Industrial Revolution. And then another set of evidence that people have offered more recently is the idea that it's a cultural or kind of intellectual shift. And that it's the enlightenment, it's the spread of scientific knowledge, it's the democratization of scientific knowledge, that these are the the processes that are driving this. But the problem with that is, in some sense, it just pushes the problem one step back. Because then you've got the problem, which is, well, it was always possible to have more scientific knowledge, more rational ways of thinking about the world. Why is it only after 1600 or 1650 that people now are interested in this way of thinking?
1: I see. So if you explain the economic progress through a kind of cultural progress, through a greater prevalence of rational inquiry in 1800 England as opposed to 1600 England, then the question becomes, well, why is it that in these societies we didn't have this form of inquiry for thousands of years and then we suddenly get the blossoming of the Enlightenment in the 18th century? Right. And
0: so another explanation that people have come up with is, well, there was this steady increase in, say, rates of literacy as we move towards the Industrial Revolution. And one argument has been made is it's things like the printing press, right? That the discovery in the 15th century, the printing press spreads literacy. Now literacy has some use, has some value. uh, And that's actually been used to explain why China did not have an industrial revolution because it turns out with a character-based system, printing presses don't work if you've got thousands and thousands of characters. So as I say, people have developed these different ideas, but to my mind, none of them offer a very convincing account. Uh, I mean, another one is the religious transformation that takes place in Europe, that Transformation, again, predates the actual industrial revolution by 250 years, so that once you allow yourself that amount of leeway, we'd be explaining Trump as having effects 200 years from now as a result of his presidency.
1: Well, let's hope that his effects won't last for 200 years, But I'm not entirely convinced (laughs) that we might not. So what then is the explanation? If it's not about culture, it's not about religion, it's not about institutions, Why do we see that extreme disjunction? And again, I mean, you know, for people who haven't seen some of this research, I mean, this is not particular to your book. I mean, it really is astounding that when you look at the living standard per capita, it is essentially stagnant for three, four, five thousand years. You know, it fluctuates a tiny little bit. There's good times and bad times, but the trend is just flat. And then it takes off in an exponential curve. It is a remarkable piece of data. So what does explain it? So I have a partial
0: explanation in the book, not a full explanation, but there's still this puzzle of the discontinuity. But what I wanted to argue in the book is that this breakthrough was becoming more and more likely somewhere on the earth. And it was becoming more likely because people were steadily being changed by the world they were living in. And so the normal thinking is that if you now look at, say, modern California, all of the domestic creatures, the horses, the cats, the dogs, have all been radically modified by humanity. But there's only one wild creature left, which is mankind themselves, right? And the argument of the book is that, no, people were adapting to the world of markets and of commerce that they were living in for thousands of years. And we can actually see lots of interesting evidence of this adaptation, rates of interest. Interest rates were actually declining globally for at least the last two or 3,000 years. There's less
1: violence. And the indication interest rate is declining because people become more reliable. Is that the idea that they become sort of...
0: They become more patient. And there is all of this evidence that somehow we were evolving in a certain direction. Then there's some interesting contemporary evidence about that, so that, for example, whenever two cultures interact and one of them is much older than the other. So take the Chinese laborers who ended up in various societies in Southeast Asia. They become the commercial classes of those societies. Similarly, the Indians who were shipped to South America to the plantations became the commercial hub of those societies And we can also find in England and other societies very clear evidence that people who were succeeding economically were taking over the society. And so we know there's a dynamic, we know there's change occurring, and then the idea is that this actually created a set of people who were more likely to be able to launch an industrial revolution. And actually another force that potentially could play a role here is the way people were marrying. In these societies. And it turns out that if you have very highly assortative marriage, you'll actually end up with a much wider distribution of abilities within a society. And so if you think it's only the upper one or two percent that creates something like an industrial revolution, another intriguing possibility is that it's actually a human institution marriage and the nature of marriage that could have also played a role in terms of the raw material, in terms of human abilities, the distribution of those abilities, the kind of attitudes that people had. have just been interested in the forces of demography shaping the nature of societies in the pre-industrial world.
1: What kind of implications would that have for long-run economic growth? I mean, when uh, some of the institutional accounts, for example, I think have quite optimistic implications for long-run economic growth in societies that have managed to happen onto those institutions. So it can be more pessimistic about societies that haven't yet figured out the right constellation of institutions. But the idea basically is that once you have the right institutions in place, this sort of incredible reservoir of human ingenuity can just keep doing its work and we will hopefully have very robust economic growth going forward. I'm trying to think through the implications of your theory. I mean, do you think that also means that basically... Over thousands of years of evolutionary history, we have managed to get used to the demands of living in a complex commercial society rather than a very small tribal society or rather than sort of no society at all. And so, therefore, we can now use that human sociability in order to keep making economic progress. Or might it be that that allows us to get to a certain kind of economic stage, but at that point, the benefits of this start to be exhausted and economic growth slows again? Or do you think sort of this origin story doesn't really bear on what kind of predictions we should make about, uh, you know, the size of the economy 50 or 100 years from today?
0: So I think if we were shaped by this long Malthusian settled agrarian interval, one of the problems is that we potentially are shaped very badly for the needs of the modern world. Because one of the things is, Income per person has gone up more than 15-fold since the Industrial Revolution in successful economies. If we had been disposed in a certain way, we would have taken most of that increase in income in the form of leisure. We would have produced relatively little material output and instead spent our time with poetry, with music, with podcasts. But no, we actually decided to actually take all of those technological gains and translate them into material output. And now, of course, we have a fossil fuel crisis (laughs) in the modern world, and we just seem to be unable to stop ourselves from consuming. And there you think, you know, that was adaptive in this earlier society because the benefits of that drive to consume were that you reproduced more successfully. But actually, we could have had a very different kind of disposition. But the interesting thing, as I say, is that uh, houses just keep getting bigger, vehicles get bigger, people have more vehicles, people travel more. Consumption seems to be built in, and the world would be a lot better off if we actually had uh, different desires. And also, we, we don't seem to be able to stop working, even when there's no real need for that work anymore. So it's amazing that in professions, people typically are working something like 60 hours per week. Where, you know, if you're a banker, (laughs) why do you need to keep on working all the time? You've already got more income than you could potentially consume in a lifetime. And so in that sense, I'm a little bit pessimistic because we do seem to have very strong drives. And what people want is something that economics is not successful in explaining, but that seems to be potentially rooted in a kind of evolutionary past. On the other hand, we are remarkably peaceful with the right institutions compared to earlier societies, so that there is this hope that under the right set of institutions, we can actually cooperate well within the modern world. So I would say That my sense is one of kind of modified optimism. We seem to have endless drive to do more, to consume more. That's actually good in terms of pushing forward science, pushing forward economies. On the other hand, there are a lot of bad sides to that. And the one other thing that I kind of emphasize in the book is that there's no sign that we become any better about arranging social institutions that an objective study of social institutions now compared to 1,300 would actually say that in most dimensions, these tended to have got worse. And so just one simple example of this, in in California, we can't price highways efficiently. The result is that every year in California, about 10% of the income of California is spent by people just waiting around in cars, competing to use highways. (laughs) All of that waiting can be converted into tax revenue at zero cost to society. I don't think we'll ever get to that point where we can persuade people
1: (laughs) to take simple steps like this. And the simple step you have in mind here would be pricing for use of highway, where at rush hour you have to pay more. That's right. We
0: have the technology. It's very simple to implement now. We could charge for every mile of highway according to the congestion, and everything would be free when it's uncongested. And we can calculate how much waiting time people are engaging in. And if we're worried about the income distribution effects, we can take the money and give it to poor people. We could make buses free in all cities in California. There's very little sign that we're showing any greater ability to organize society, right? I actually think of something like Britain around 1800 or 1830 as being one of the kind of high points in terms of the ability of people to organize a well-functioning kind of liberal economy.
1: So, one of the things that drew me to your research was your uh, book, and you always use these Hemingway puns. The sun also rises, the sun S O N rather than S U N. It really threw me through a loop because, as a good European social democrat, my hope is that when you open up institutions for people, when you have good education that's available to everybody in society, when you make sure that your institutions aren't too economically exclusionary on a whole set of different bases, you end up with a lot of upward social mobility. And some research seems to suggest that there is a reasonable amount of social mobility, But when you just look at the income of fathers and the incomes of sons, the former doesn't predict the latter that well. It predicts a good chunk of it, but not all that well. And so there seems to be real movement from generation to generation. You started looking at rare surnames and trying to track the fate of families with those rare surnames over centuries. And the idea of the rare surnames, of course, is that it makes it easier to identify who's a member of this family or a set of families over time. What did you find?
0: So surnames are fascinating things because most of us don't know anything beyond our grandparents about our history. But in a society like England, your surname typically stems from 1300. And it's telling you about one particular line of descent. And often these surnames are occupational. It's actually telling you what the occupation was of the first person to bear that surname. And what is revealed very clearly in any society that I've looked at using surnames is that social mobility is much slower than the conventional measures suggest. And what has actually happened with the conventional measures is that there's a lot of flux in social mobility. And also, our social status is actually something that's very hard to measure, right? And we use measures like how many years of education do people have, but there's very different qualities in different education or how much income do people have. And it turns out that a lot of what's described as social mobility is actually just this measurement problem,
1: (laughs) The way that I've always thought about this, and I may have mentioned this in this podcast before, is if you have a grandfather who's a banker and a father who's a professor and a son who's a banker, it looks like there's tremendous movement in income between each of these generations. And there may even be real movement in uh, education, because the professor probably was at grad school for 700 years, and some of the bankers may have gone straight to Wall Street from uh, undergrads and perhaps done an MBA later on. But clearly, from a more sociological point of view, this is simply a family that's been elite for three generations, and you know the, the nature of their eliteness is slightly different from generation to generation, but they're sort of at the top of society over the course of all of those three generations. Is that the measurement issue you're talking yes, about?
0: Yes, that's very well described. There are these measurement issues. There is also flux, right? And there really is this genuine flux. But we behave, and the surnames are revealing this, as though we have a memory of a much longer lineage that we're part of. And so you actually can predict if the grandfather was a banker and the father was a banker and then the son becomes a refuse collector, (laughs) you can actually predict that the children of those refuse collectors will do much better than you would typically expect. And somehow we have a memory where if you want to predict someone's social outcome you actually get more predictive power from the whole of their set of relatives than you would be by just looking at their parents. And so there's this long history as predictive, and that's what the surnames are capturing. Because then we can organize people into these family lineages, and we can either do it using rare surnames, or in a lot of societies like the United States, surnames are very indicative about which ethnic group you belong to, or which immigrant group, you belong to, and you'll find exactly the same pattern. And whereas the typical correlation between father and son, or mother and daughter on a single aspect of status would be 0.4 or something like that, the surname suggests the long run correlation is something like 0.8. And it's very strong. But there are two things that we find from this one is, optimistically, there does tend to be complete social mobility if you wait long enough. The only problem is that long enough means 300 years. We're all headed towards the average, (laughs) but it's going to take 300 years for us to get there. The bad thing about this is that it's going to be very difficult, near impossible, to correct disparities between different groups in a society in the foreseeable future, right? And so if you find a group that's doing poorly, it will take a very, very long time for this to be corrected because the process just is very slow. And let me give one example of this. The Huguenots were exiled and one quarter of the exiles went to England. And they came in and they did astonishingly well within British society. And they ended up almost assimilating almost completely, but they have a very distinctive set of surnames. A hundred years after they arrived from Britain, they were 30 times more likely than the average person in Britain to go to Oxford or Cambridge. It's still the case now that they're something like four times more likely than the average person to attend Oxford or Cambridge.
1: And uh, obnoxiously, as somebody who went to Cambridge myself as an undergrad, I was right. struck reading your book by recognizing some of the surnames in your book, because I had had acquaintances at Cambridge with those surnames.
0: So these types of rare surnames, you really do see, as I say, this uh, amazing uh, persistence. And actually, we just chose these surnames as just what are rare surnames that people are very wealthy in the beginning of the 19th century. But I was astonished to be wandering around London, and recognizing that a bunch of the streets are named after these people, a bunch of the buildings (laughs) were named after these people. They really are a kind of a living presence in these societies. And they also tend to be intermarrying with each other in these records. And so people are, in some sense, are right. There really is an elite and an underclass in any society that is actually persisting very strongly through time, But in the case of England, what's interesting there is it's a very open elite. When the Huguenots come in, they're not part of that elite, but they quickly make themselves part of this elite, and eventually they acclimatize completely. And I think also America has a very open elite. And so that's why I say, in some sense, this is a pessimistic conclusion, but actually also it's a very optimistic conclusion because it's saying if you're at the top of the social ladder, it tends to be because you have some kind of special ability. It's not just because of the burden of kind of history and the rigidity of the society. It's a sign of the astonishing kind of openness of these societies.
1: So let me rehearse some of the objections that come to my mind, and perhaps as the longer we talk, we might have more objections, perhaps we'll have to be here forever. But when I think of one of the groups that is incredibly successful at the moment in the United States, it's various immigrant groups, actually. It is Mm -hmm. uh, Chinese immigrants to the United States. It is Nigerian immigrants to the United States. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, some of them are explained by their very high social status within their own societies. So when you look at Indian Americans who outperform, I think just about any other immigrant group, that's because they're very highly selected for H-1B visas. And actually, they tend to have been very elite in India as well. And further may have earned less money there because there was less money to be made in India in the 70s and 80s than there is in the United States today. You know, that helps to explain why they're so successful. But that's not true of many of the Chinese immigrant kids who dominate in selective schools in New York City, for example. Many of them have parents who are cab drivers, parents who are cleaners, parents who don't have any high-status professions and who didn't have high-status professions so far as I'm aware in China either. So why is it that some of these groups are able to succeed so highly when they don't seem to have been able to succeed at the same level in their societies of origin, when they're not recruited from an elite class?
0: I actually think that most of the time it's just the selection mechanism that's operating here. Certainly the case for Indians coming to the United States. And even in the case of Chinese migrants, you can be quite poor coming to the U.S. and you can actually take a relatively low status job within the United States. But often in relative terms, these people can be the important people in a village in China, the landowners or stuff like that. And so that's an interesting empirical question. And it would actually be amazing if by moving from one society to another, you can transform your fortunes. That would tell us a huge amount about uh, social mobility and about the possibilities of social mobility. But in this recent work, we actually can track a bunch of people in England who go to the United States, Australia, Canada, and New Zealand. And we can track what happens to their social status in this new world. And the interesting thing we find is it makes no difference to their relative social position, these migrations. And there's no evidence that somehow America or Australia has this elixir where it can actually speed up social mobility or move people who are at the bottom in Britain further up, right? It just replicates the existing class structure of these people uh, coming from Britain. And so i say that's it's a somewhat open question. But if I had to bet, my money would be that it's actually a relative social position is just being reproduced and that these selection effects are dominating.
1: Let's say if you rank all of the people in the village from which the parents may have immigrated, they will be in the top 10th of the social status hierarchy in that village. But of course, being the top 10th of the status hierarchy in a village in China in the 70s or 80s still means that you don't have much education, you don't have very much income. But you come to the United States and you manage to rise to, over the course of often one generation, perhaps two generations, to the top 10th of the hierarchy of income and education within the United States. And suddenly that means that you're at the selective school in New York City and go on to a selective college and make very good money and you're sort of part of this very, very successful immigrant group.
0: Yeah, that's exactly uh, my thinking about this. And actually, if I can say just a little bit about my own family, when the book came out, some people said, but isn't your own family a complete counterexample to this thesis? Because it is actually literally true that one of my grandfathers was a coal miner. (laughs) And so isn't this showing, you know, these possibilities of mobility? But the point was, he was a coal miner for a year because as an immigrant, he needed to finance his business as soon as he got that money together. He set up a business. He ended up living a fairly middle-class existence. And in the village he came from in Ireland, his family were the school teachers and also were landowners in the village. And so he came from poverty, but he didn't change his social position that much. <laughs> and I haven't advanced that much beyond the social position of, of my own grandparents. But that's, how, in some sense, it'd be an interesting hypothesis for people to kind of test is whether you really can have this replacement. And one thing that is interesting is that in a society like India, certain names are very elite. I In mean, India, actually, names kind of scream out social status. When those people come to the United States, I think it preserves that hierarchy in terms of name eliteness. And so the Chatterjee's in India, the very top of the social ladder, but they're also at the top of the academic ladder and the medical ladder in the United States. That's something I don't have proof on, but my hypothesis is that people who have capabilities in one society, just translate them to a different society, where you would get an exception would be things like the Jewish population from Eastern Europe. But that was actually a case where there really was explicit repression of this particular group and denial of education and denial of opportunities. And so a group like that
1: could find its position transformed. So when you think of Jews who were often in dire poverty in Central and Eastern Europe, and then when they emigrated to Germany before the Holocaust, to other societies in Europe, and of course to North America, they did very, very well. Your answer would be that, you know, when the institutional context is sufficiently oppressive that you simply do not have opportunity as a member of some ethnic group, then you're obviously not going to rise. Um, And so when you are able to move to a context where those institutional obstacles are removed, you can finally flourish. And that helps to explain the sort of great explosion in productivity and contribution economically, scientifically and culturally by Jews over the course of the 19th and 20th century. Is that roughly the argument?
0: Absolutely. And so not denying, I mean, there are societies where certain groups are very explicitly discriminated against. But all I would say is that for a lot of societies, you get this division into social classes where it isn't actually driven by any explicit mechanism. And in that case, I don't think when you shift people from one society to another, that somehow the order is going to change, that the social order will turn upside down.
1: So what is the implication of this thinking about the likely prospects of different uh, ethnic groups? So I know one of the very interesting examples in your book is Americans in the Northeast with uh, French origin surnames that, to an extent that we're unaware of, actually hugely underperform other groups because they come, for various reasons, from a sort of disfavored immigrant lineage. And that seems to persist for quite a long time. Uh, When you think of, you know, the real socioeconomic injustices in the United States, when you look at, you know, the extent of the wealth disparity uh, and the smaller but still real extent of an income disparity between whites and African-Americans in the United States, how optimistic does this story make you about being able to remedy that in the long run? Because I guess that you could tell two different stories here. One is that there are some complicated factors that make it less likely that these groups achieve which sounds like a very pessimistic and quite shocking story. And the other, I guess, might be that the analogy is more to to Jews from Central and Eastern Europe to say that, you know, there's a very obvious historical reason why African-Americans have not been able to accumulate wealth in the United States. And now that the obstacles to that wealth accumulation have been removed, we should hope and expect that there will be a process of social mobility there.
0: I think what I would say is that there is a structural problem in modern societies, which is that we live with a very strong ideology that believes that differences in human condition really relate to differences in what our endowments, what our opportunities were, <laughs> and really don't relate to underlying abilities of people. And once you have that very strong ideology, If you look at a society like the United States, then you have to say, this must be a racist society because of these differences that we're observing across different social groups. And the problem, as I say, is that if we look within a society like, say, England, which is almost entirely white in the 19th century, we see these same differences It's just that they're not showing up because they don't reflect in people's skin color or in people's religion or in various other ways. And we also see that things change very, very slowly. They are changing, they are moving, but they're changing very slowly. And so what I would say about the United States is that the example of the French names is very interesting because those French immigrants actually had intermarried completely with Irish Italians, typically other Catholics in the Northeast. But we can actually look at families where the grandfather died before you were born versus fathers where the grandfather is there to actually play some role in your life. And it turns out it makes no difference. Your grandfather is always informative, even if you never met them, and even though they couldn't play any causal role. We can also look at the extent of people's family networks. It doesn't turn out to matter. We can look at birth order it makes no difference. We can look at even, what if your parents died when you were five years old? It doesn't actually affect people's social outcomes. And this study was actually done even more systematically in Sweden where they looked at the flu outbreak in 1918, and they looked at children who lost a parent in this kind of random flu outbreak. The interesting thing was, again, it was making no difference to people's life outcomes. And so, as I say, the surprising thing that this lineage data in England suggests is that the main driver of all this stuff is actually people's fundamental genetics. And people I know are extremely unhappy (laughs) with that idea. But it is something, I mean, the genetic model has very clear and very specific predictions. And in this new book, we're going to try and say, well, what was the thing that said it's wealth that matters? What would the predictions of that be? And one thing that happens in wealthy families is how much wealth you get depends on how many siblings you have. And so we can look in the 19th century at families that get a shock because there's 15 surviving siblings versus one where there's only one. And then we can look three or four generations later and say, has that fundamentally changed the outcomes for that family? And the answer is no. (laughs) It doesn't matter. If it turns out that you're in a family where you get an unexpectedly large endowment of wealth, you tend to fritter it away. If you get an unexpectedly small endowment, but you're from an upper-class family, you tend to accumulate. People seem to have some idea about what kind of wealth is appropriate to their social position, and they adjust during their lifetimes. So, as I say, it's interesting, and it's, I don't understand why people are, well, I think I understand partly why people are so resistant to the idea that genetics may play a very significant role here. It's because we somehow think that social life is so complicated and so nuanced that how could it be driven just by what letter we have at various nodes on the genome? <laughs> could that really determine? that I am going to become a professor or I'm going to become a carpenter, right? That basic set of hundreds of little instructions. And we just find it very hard to think that that could actually be a kind of a major determinant. But interestingly, this new book is going to say the evidence is there very powerfully that that's playing a role, but it turns out that the role it's playing is also strongly influenced by the nature of marriage. And the evidence seems to be that we match up very closely in marriage. That one of the things that would cause much more social mobility would be if we could just stop marrying people who are almost clones of ourselves.
1: <laughs> this is one of the studies that I'm obsessed with. And I forget now, I don't, I don't believe it's your study, but I'm sure you're aware of it. And I use it as a little parlor game. So if I ever meet any of my listeners here in person and I ask you this, I'm sorry if I'm ruining the trick, but the simple question is, if I wanted to predict your IQ, who should I ask in order to get as close as possible to it? If I was allowed to administer an IQ test to anybody in the world other than you, who should I administer that IQ test to in order to get to your IQ? And of course, you know, anybody who studied a little bit of basic genetics uh, and who believes that IQ is at least to some extent genetic, as all the evidence seems to suggest, whether we like it or not, might think, well, the obvious answer is your parents or your full sibling or your child, if you have one. Uh, but do you know what the better answer is, Greg?
0: Well, I presume it's your spouse.
1: Indeed it is. So the spouse that you're not genetically related to, where there's no biological reason why they should in any way have a similar IQ to you, actually is a closer predictor than any of your relatives, it turns out.
0: Yes, normally when people are matching in marriage, say they're matching by height, what happens is that the phenotype match will be closer than the genotype match because you're matching on the actual height of the person. And so the genes that help underlie that don't match so closely because
1: you don't observe that. I see. So the idea is that you have a preference for somebody who matches in height in a certain kind of way, perhaps somebody who's two inches shorter on some kind of, you know, set of standards of what a well-looking couple should look like. The man is a little bit taller than a woman in some kind of traditional beauty standard. But it may be that the man actually is much shorter than they should be given their genes because they had a very deprived childhood and they didn't grow as far as... as And so that man then would end up marrying somebody who's sort of shorter than the genotype would suggest. Is that the idea?
0: Yes. And and so the idea is if you're matching on what you see, you're not going to match that well on the underlying genotype because there are people who are accidentally tall and people who are accidentally short. A recent study, though, in England two years ago, using their large genetic database, found that there's one exception to that general rule, and that is when people match on education, what is actually happening is the genotype that predicts education is actually matching much more closely than the realized years of education. (laughs) That somehow people in the form of education are matching with the correlation of something like 0.6, which is higher than the observed correlation of how many years of education you get. And the clue on that then is that somehow people in marriage have a whole person estimate of the other person that is actually closer to their genotype that predicts education because they care about their sense of humor, their wits, their general knowledge, other things like that. They don't just care about years of education. And as I say, it's a very interesting kind of social institution. It's not obvious why matching on marriage should take this form. I mean, we could match where it was much more important what the wealth of the person was, or it could be much more important what the beauty of the partners was. And so this is a kind of an interesting social institution that we have. And with this newer data, it's possible to measure that type of matching, even in England in, say, 1800, when women had no formal education and had no formal occupations, typically. And it turns out that the matching seems to be just as close in that society as well. There's something fundamental about
1: matching. That we want a romantic partner that matches our intelligence or that matches our sense of a world, that matches our wit, whatever it may be. I think that's the first time I've heard you say something optimistic, which is to say that (laughs) rather than seeking out a spouse who happens to have the same status attribute who happens to have gone to the same college or who happens to make as much money as us, who happens to be in the same profession as us, we are actually seeking out somebody who's a match in terms of how they perceive the world or how they engage with the world, which I think you could try and take a more optimistic spin on.
0: Oh, yes. No, no. I mean, it it is a kind of an, an idealized picture of kind of companion marriage, right? That they're going to be your companion in life. And so you want someone that you feel comfortable with intellectually, And the interesting thing about this, though, is, and this is an ambition, I don't know if it's possible to do this, but another interesting possibility for the rise of the modern world would be maybe this is a modern invention, this type of marriage. Maybe back in the medieval village, you didn't have a lot of choice of companions, (laughs) and you chose based on something like a family or something like that, and... If we actually had switched to this kind of tight assortment in marriage, it would have enormous population consequences in terms of the overall distribution of abilities because it would actually lead then to much greater dispersal of abilities within the society as opposed to a society where I just married the random person. Okay? And then in some societies, for example, Middle East, cousin marriage is still quite common and it turns out that cousin marriage would actually match you less closely than we are matching in modern Western society once you look at these genetic measures, right? Because if it's just, you have to take whoever is your mother's brother's first daughter (laughs) as your partner, that can actually result, even in a society with a lot of cousin marriage, in a less close connection than one where we have this companionate kind of marriage standard. But the only problem is that empirically it'll be very hard to get good evidence on how are people matching in something like the Middle Ages or something like But one thing is in Western Europe, women tended to marry later. And so some people have argued that that actually had significant consequences for the nature of marriage because these women are independent of their parents then and really control the marriage market. They enter the marriage market as free agents. But i say it it, it does create these kind of interesting puzzles and uh, possibilities, again, in terms of thinking about why is modern society
1: so different from pre-industrial society. So I think I slightly disagree with your explanation of why people resist genetic explanations. I think that there's two... Reasons for that that seem more urgent to me. And I'd love to get your responses to the concerns that motivate that resistance. So, the first is that there's obviously a history of people talking about genetics in order to justify racism. And that there's obviously people who might take that and then say, well, look, you see, uh, actually, this and that race is inferior to this and that race. And so, if we see them faring more poorly in society, that's just part of a natural order and we shouldn't worry too much about it. So I'd love to know how we can resist that set of conclusions.
0: There are good reasons for people to feel very unsettled by genetic explanations because it immediately leads to the conclusion that, well, the relative reproduction rate of different sectors of society is going to have an effect on overall abilities, right? Or also things like assortment in marriage is going to have an effect on these things. And, and this leads to potentially all kinds of mischief in terms of social policy. But I think here I have a very strong feeling that social science research is very ill-grounded in modern societies because if you look at the funders of this research, what they want to fund is things that will change social outcomes <laughs> through institutional interventions. And so, all of the funding, all of the bias is in favor of finding stuff that will change outcomes. And I actually found when I was trying to get some funding for this most recent project that when we sent it to one funder, the response was, well, if this project is successful, it will show that you cannot change social outcomes very much. We should not fund such projects. We should only fund projects which show us how to change social outcomes, right? And so my sense then is that I can understand the unease and particularly the history here, but your unease with an explanation should play no role in terms of whether you think it has merit or not, right? And in fact, the explanations you should be most willing to consider in some ways should be the ones that make you most uncomfortable because then you would think, hold on, there's likely to be strong bias against this type of explanation in society because we all want to feel better about the possibilities. I mean, no one wants to feel that I can point to a certain family and say they have very little prospect in life because I can see in their inheritance (laughs) that, you know, nothing has happened for five generations, there's no possibility here. We just don't want to have that feeling about people. We want everyone to have a chance. And it's admirable, it's commendable that we have that instinct, but there we really have to divorce trying to say what's true about the world and trying to say what's promising or hopeful or optimistic about the world. So my my message to you is first trust the pessimists because they're less likely to be selling a bill of goods than the optimists
1: yeah, what's interesting about your example of the funding is that there's a kind of category mistake going on, I think, which is to say that, look, you know, I very strongly believe in the truth and I very strongly believe in freedom of speech. But if there was some piece of research that made it you know harder for us or that made it impossible for us to actually redress social inequality, I could see a strong case for not carrying out that piece of research. I certainly don't see why we should fund it. But of course, what your study seems to do is not to, in fact make it harder. In the real world, to remedy inequality or injustice, it just helps to explain why it is so hard. So, you know, it helps to explain why some of the current efforts may not succeed, but it's not as though it is the study that makes those efforts not succeed. So, there seems to be a sort of strange elision going on here, where the funder is saying, well, look, if you study this and you're finding us right, then what we're doing doesn't work. So let's not do the study. But of course, the right conclusion would be perhaps the work isn't the right work to be doing. But that does lead me to a follow-up question, which is, you know, what is the policy implication of this? And I could imagine a sort of very libertarian view on this, which essentially says, well, look, so it turns out that different people for no particular merit of their own, just because of the lack of a kind of family inheritance they have, are capable of making real contributions to society and others are not. So they should enjoy the huge fruits that flow uh, from the talent and from the work that is going to be involved and shame about the others. And then, of course, there could, on the other hand, be actually a very, very egalitarian interpretation where you say that precisely because the outcomes are so predetermined to some extent by family inheritance and other things, we should engage in very strong redistribution in order to remedy uh, what we might think of as an injustice. What do you think the policy implications are?
0: So I I think there are strong policy implications here. One is that, you know, social arrangements can change the rewards from being at the top of the social ladder relative to being at the bottom very dramatically. And if you go to Sweden, the rewards are much less than in the United States from being on top of the pile. And if you really believe that this is, it's built in to people, there really isn't much chance for people to change these things, then I think it argues very strongly for saying we should equalize much more, right? It's not people's fault that they're at the bottom here. It's not people's merit, then sometimes that's placed them at the top. And so I actually think that that is a strong implication. A second thing that I should mention about the English study is, we're observing families going through from a period where there was no public education to one where the government is investing five or 10% of national income in education. It's having no effect in terms of rates of social mobility, right? So one of the things we would say is, well, maybe we need to re-examine things like education, which have been promoted very strongly, and with the idea always that the more education we have, the more mobility we're going to get, maybe we're not spending on the right thing here. (laughs) And we should switch that to things where we can actually do stuff
1: to help people more. And what, what kind of stuff is that? Well, again, this
0: would be the redistribution, right? There's a limit on the taxing power of the modern state. There are potentially, with technological change, going to be a set of people whose marginal product, their wage in the free market, will be below subsistence. We may have to support people in decent standards of living, and these would be the kind of measures that we're going to be competing. Now that healthcare costs are rising so fast, education costs arising, you know, there does seem to be a limit about how much income the state can take. And also the state taking income is often very inefficient in terms of these transfers and the mechanisms of dispersing it. So I think there are some implications here that education is the holy grail of kind of modern social thought. And like anything like this, it should be examined more kind of critically. And, for example, in England, when compulsory schooling was extended in 1922, 47, and 72, you can observe a change within a year to a set of people who got an average half a year more of education. And we can now observe what happened to those people who got this benefit. And the answer is Nothing. <laughs> they did not advance in any way in terms of longevity, income, lifestyle, compared to the people who got less education before. And so I think that there are some implications of this research that could actually benefit society in terms of saying, maybe we need to kind of re-examine why we want everyone to go to university now in the modern society. I mean, people's image of the good society is that it's only a good society if everyone completes at least a BA and probably also a master's, and that maybe that was the wrong path. We had the wrong idea about the benefits of education at a social level. So I have to say, so there are some implications where we could actually redirect our resources.
1: So let me try and see how much optimism I can muster at the end of this conversation. So I guess the optimism is that these differences between groups do erase over time. It might just take very, very long time, and that perhaps we should put our effort into creating a society in which fewer rewards and benefits come from being at the top. So this is not an anti-meritocratic point. It is not that those who have the most to contribute shouldn't be in the positions of influence or in the positions even of power, but it is that less should flow from being in those positions. It is not that in Sweden, you know, we are Randomly assigning some people who have performed less well in school or college to be doctors. It is just that a Swedish doctor doesn't have as privileged a life compared to a Swedish postal worker as would be the case in the United States. Is there any other grounds for optimism that you can leave with us at the end of this conversation?
0: Well, so that's that's, the same one. And one of the things that's interesting is the surname study. One of the countries I studied was Sweden. And persistence of elite surnames in Sweden is exactly as strong as it is in the United States or England. But as I say, with this much better social arrangement, if you have to be poor, if you have to be at the bottom of the social ladder, ship yourself from the United States and go to Sweden, right? Or go to Denmark or go to one of these other societies. And I think that is an important lesson. And then, as I say, I think when I now listen to social discourse here, What I find depressing and alarming is the very strong assumptions that people have that there's a privileged group which has somehow got unearned privilege and unearned status and that we need to, for example, there are all these initiatives at the University of California which say, if we don't have people of this type or this group, we failed, we need to set up mechanisms now to ensure that every group is proportionately represented. And I just think that that is a very handicapped way of looking at society. And also, I think, not a particularly correct way of looking at that. And I would hate for people to spend their lives thinking that, look, there's the in-group and the out-group, but most of us here are on the out group. (laughs) And we're living in a fundamentally unfair society. Because actually, what this data seems to be revealing is that society is a lot fairer than people had imagined, right? There is a lottery, (laughs) but that lottery occurred at the time of your birth. It's not that it occurred later in the social structure. And also that attempts to correct this perceived injustices of the social order are themselves going to do a lot of mischief and are going to lead to a conformism and kind of a groupthink in terms of outcomes and that if we really want a free society, a society where people are free to have their own opinions, to have their own way of acting, then it'll be much better if we think of this as an open society, as a society that's open to merit and talent, wherever it's coming from, And also to recognize that there's nothing in social arrangements that's going to be able to guarantee that everyone wins the same amount within this society, right? And we should also all have the humility of knowing that 10 generations ago, our predecessors were completely average, and 10 generations from now, our descendants will be completely average. And we are in the sun, (laughs) but we're only briefly in the sun, right? And I actually say to my students when I talk about stuff, I say, the one thing I can assure you is that your children will do less well than you will do because you are an elite. And there is a law of social motion <laughs> that says that whenever you're elite, on average, you're at the top of an arc <laughs> and the only way is uh, down. Uh, and that if people kind of took that on board I think they would have more humility about their successes and their place in life and more kind of common feeling if we realized we're really part of this endless social movement upwards and downwards, the kind of wave of kind of social status that's passing through society. We're visitors to the top rooms in the hotel. We don't own the hotel.
1: Well, on that optimistic, pessimistic note, Gregory Clark, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Sure. Thank you
0: very much for
1: having me. That was fun. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about this show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be liked, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording
0: carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license thanks to Silent Partner for their song Chess Pieces.